Today, this is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships, and how to make sense of the latest research that is reported in the media regarding the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness, and all of that brought to you without the hype and distortion of most other media sources, and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, along the way trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and better informing the general public about mental health issues. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. And uh, this edition of the podcast was pre-recorded for initial airing on Wednesday evening, March the 9th. And whether you're listening to this podcast live on March 9th at 7 p.m. on americaswebradio.com or whether you're playing back as an archive copy or you're listening to it on iTunes, very much appreciate your tuning in and listening. Uh, thank you very much for that. Hope that you'll find tonight's podcast interesting and informative for those of you who are interested in mental health issues. And the first subject for tonight, if you remember, last year there was a huge scandal about research in psychology uh, because an in-depth examination of um, a landmark study which showed that more than half of all psychology studies couldn't be replicated. Uh, that was what caused such a big scandal. Uh, a bunch of people looked at all studies of human behavior in psychological studies, uh, psychology studies, psychological journal articles. They tried to do them over to replicate the results. And they found that in more than half the cases, they couldn't replicate the results of the original studies, and therefore they claimed this threw doubt on the entire endeavor of psych psychological research into human thought, emotion, and behavior. Well, fortunately, uh, a more in-depth examination of that study shows that the attempt that those researchers made to replicate the studies, which supposedly failed more than half the time, was in itself highly flawed, thus uh, making the pessimistic conclusions they came to completely unwarranted. According to two Harvard professors and their collaborators, this 2015 landmark study claiming that more than half of all psychology studies cannot be replicated is actually wrong. In an attempt to determine the replicability of psychological science. A consortium of 270 scientists, known as the Open Science Collaboration, or OSC, tried to replicate the results of 100 published studies. More than half of them failed, creating sensational headlines worldwide about the so-called replication crisis in psychology, 
and throwing doubt, really, on the entire field and how reliable we can consider the data it generates and therefore the insights that it reaches into human behavior. But an in-depth examination by another group of researchers has revealed that the OSC made some serious mistakes that, again, make this pessimistic conclusion about psychological research completely unwarranted. The methods of many of the replication studies, in other words, the attempt to uh, duplicate or replicate the results of the original studies, turned out to be remarkably different from the originals. And that's not how it's supposed to be. If you're going to replicate a study, you're supposed to use the exact same methods as the originals. Uh, So the researchers of this latest look at this issue call these uh, differences between the methods of the original studies and the replication studies infidelities. (laughs) Interesting uh, use of that term, isn't it? And these infidelities had two important consequences. First, they introduced statistical error into the data, which led the OSC to significantly underestimate how many of their replications should have failed by chance alone. When this error is taken into account, the number of failures in their data is no greater than one would expect if all 100 of the original findings had been true. Second, researchers discovered that the low-fidelity studies were four times more likely to fail than were the high-fidelity studies, suggesting that when replicators strayed from the original methods, they caused their own studies to fail. Finally, the OSC used a statistically low-powered design. When researchers applied this design to a published data set that was known to have a high replication rate, it too showed a low replication rate, suggesting that the OSC's design was destined from the start to underestimate the replicability of psychological science. Individually, each of these problems would be enough to cast doubt on the conclusion that most people have drawn from this study. But taken together, they completely repudiate it. The flaws are described in a commentary published on March the 4th in the journal Science. Like most scientists who read the OSC's article when it appeared last year, the authors of this study were shocked and chagrined. But when they began to scrutinize the methods and reanalyze the raw data, they immediately noticed problems. Problems that started with how the replicators had selected the 100 original studies. If you want to estimate a parameter of a population, then you either have to randomly sample from that population or make statistical corrections for the fact that you didn't. The OSC did neither. What they did, the authors state, is create an idiosyncratic, arbitrary list of sampling rules that excluded the majority of psychology's subfields from the sample, that excluded entire classes of studies 
whose methods are probably among the best in science from the sample, and so on. Then they proceeded to violate all of their own rules. Worse yet, they actually allowed some replicators to have a choice about which studies they would try to replicate. If they had used these same methods to sample people instead of studies, no reputable scientific journal would have published their findings. So the first thing the authors realized was that no matter what they found, good news or bad news, they never had a chance of estimating the reproducibility of psychological science, which is what the very title of their paper claims they did. And that was just the beginning. If you were going to replicate a hundred studies, some will fail by chance alone. That's basic sampling theory. So you have to use statistics to estimate how many of these studies are expected to fail by chance alone, because otherwise the number that actually do fail is meaningless. The OSC did do this, but they made a critical error. When they did their calculations, they failed to consider the fact that their replication studies were not just new samples from the same population. They were often quite different from the originals in many ways, and those differences are a source of statistical error. So they did, the, the current authors rather, did the calculation the right way and then applied it to their data. And what they found was the number of failures they observed was just about what you should expect to observe by chance alone, even if all 100 of the original findings were true. The failure of the replication studies to match the original studies was a failure of the replications, not of the original studies, as the authors of that paper claimed. <clears throat> Most people assume that a replication is indeed a replica of the original study. Readers surely assumed that if a group of scientists did a hundred replications, then they must have used the same methods to study the same populations. In this case, that assumption would be quite wrong. Replications always vary from originals in minor ways, of course, but if you read the reports carefully, you discover that many of the replication studies differed in truly astounding ways ways that make it hard to understand how they could even be called replications. As an example, there's an original study that involved showing white students at Stanford University a video of four other Stanford students discussion, <coughs> sorry, discussing admissions policies at their university. Three of the discussants were white and one was black. During the discussion, one of the white students made offensive comments about affirmative action, and the researchers found that the observers looked significantly longer at the black student when they believed he could hear the other's comments than when he could not. So how did the replication study get done? With students at the University of Amsterdam, a completely different population. They had Dutch students watch a video of Stanford students speaking in English about affirmative action policies at a university more than 5,000 miles away. 
not exactly a good replication, is it? So in other words, unlike the participants in the original study, participants in the replication study watched students at a foreign university speaking in a foreign language about an issue of no relevance to them. But that wasn't the most troubling part. Well, actually, we'll take a commercial break right here. We'll go into more areas in which the uh, paper that claimed psychological science could not be replicated, therefore throwing it all into doubt, was terribly flawed. And we'll discuss what real-world implications all this scientific uh, going back and forth has. And we'll have that and more mental health-related news after this commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. This is your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news, Scott Bay, and your host, on psychiatry today, we're talking about <clears throat> some researchers who took a closer look at a study published last year by the Open Science Collaboration, which sought to debunk psychological research as not being replicable, therefore the conclusions not being valid. But the current authors, when they went back and took a look at the data, found something else. And uh, again, we were talking right before the break. One example was a study that uh, the OSC tried to replicate using college students from Stanford University, instead doing it at the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Uh, if you dive deep into the data, you discover something else. The replicators realized 
that doing this study in the Netherlands might have been a problem. So they wisely decided to run another version of it in the United States. And when they did, they basically replicated the original result. And yet, when the OSC estimated the reproducibility of psychological science, they excluded the successful replication and included only the one from the University of Amsterdam that failed. So the public hears the headline, yet another psychology study doesn't replicate, instead of the more accurate headline, yet another psychology study replicates just fine if you do it right and not if you do it wrong, which of course is not a very exciting headline. Some of the replications were quite faithful to the originals, but anyone who carefully reads all the replication reports will find many more examples like this one. These methodological infidelities were a problem for another reason, namely that they introduce additional error into the data set. That error can be calculated, and when it is, it turns out that the number of replication studies that actually failed is about what should be expected if every single one of the original findings had been true. Now, one could argue about how best to make this calculation, but the fact is that the OSC didn't make the calculation at all. They simply ignored this potent source of error, and that caused them to draw the wrong conclusions from their data. That doesn't mean that all 100 studies were true, of course, but it does mean that this article provides no evidence to the contrary. So we now know that the methodological infidelities created statistical noise, but was that all they did? Or were the infidelities of a certain kind? In other words, did they just tend to change the original result, or did they tend to change it in a particular way? To find out, authors needed a measure of how faithful each of the 100 replications was. Luckily, the OSC supplied it. Before each replication began, the OSC asked the original authors to examine the planned replication study and say whether they would endorse it as a faithful replication of their work. And about 70% did so. And <clears throat> so the current authors then discovered something important. The low fidelity replications were an astonishing four times more likely to fail. What that suggests is that the infidelities did not just create random statistical noise, they actually biased the studies toward failure. In their technical comment, authors also note that the OSC used a low-powered design. They replicated each of the 100 studies once, using roughly this, the number of subjects that were used in the original studies. The authors of that paper had used a, a very high power design. They replicated each study with more than 30 times the original number of participants, and that high power design produced a very high replication rate. So the current authors asked a simple question. What would happen if the authors had used a low-power design that was used by the OSC? 
The answer is that the replication rate would have been even lower than what the OSC found. Despite uncovering serious problems with this study, the current authors emphasized their critique, critique does not suggest any wrongdoing and is simply part of the normal process of scientific inquiry. They say that no one involved in the study was trying to deceive anyone. They just made mistakes as scientists sometimes do. In response to the current paper, the OSC quibbled about a number of minor issues, but conceded the major one, which is that their paper does not provide evidence for the pessimistic conclusions that most people have drawn from it. The big takeaway point here is that meta-science, or a scientific paper about other scientific studies, must obey the basic rules of science. All the rules about sampling and calculating error and keeping experimenters blind to the hypothesis, all of those rules must apply whether you are studying people or studying the replicability of a science. Meta-science does not get a pass. It is not exempt. And those doing meta-science are not above the fray. They are part of the scientific process. If you violate the basic rules of science, you get the wrong answer. And that's what happened here. This new, this paper that came out last year had an extraordinary impact. It was Science Magazine's number three breakthrough of the year across all fields of science. It led to changes in policy at many scientific journals changes in priorities at funding agencies, and it seriously undermined public perceptions of psychology. So it is not enough now in the sober light of retrospect to say that mistakes were made. These mistakes had very serious repercussions. The current authors hope that the OSC will now work as hard to correct the public misperceptions of their findings as they did to produce the findings themselves. Well, <clears throat> the reason that I decided to discuss this on the podcast and why I think it's important is because the original paper sought to indict the entire field of uh, psychological research, uh, which is so important for mental health. This is how we learn about human behavior and emotion and how we can lead to uh, better methods of helping those who suffer from mental health issues. And uh, for these authors to come out and say, you know what, psychological research um, leads to erroneous conclusions which can't be replicated, that was huge. It was absolutely scandalous. Uh, so to hear now that the current authors have debunked that paper uh, is equally huge. But it calls into question a lot of serious things. How could the prestigious journal Science have accepted the original paper for publication if it had so many methodological flaws? Uh, a prestigious journal such as that uh, is supposed to have very rigorous methods of vetting any paper that is submitted to it for publication. And if methodological flaws are found, uh, then the paper should be rejected outright or uh, it should be 
submitted back to the authors for changes and revisions to address the flaws. And then uh, a revised manuscript could be reconsidered for publication, at the very least. The fact that that did not happen is very troubling. And I sincerely hope that among the outcomes of the new study is that uh, journals such as Science will do a better job vetting the papers that are submitted to them for publication. Um, also, it's a successful uh, reaffirmation of the methods of psychological science and therefore the conclusions that it draws. And it's a reminder that we have to be careful not to read too much uh, into the hype uh, that the mainstream media feeds us when it comes to reports about major scientific studies. Um, it, it, it just made a very splashy headline last year, of course, uh, but looking back now in retrospect and seeing how uh, the conclusions of that study were totally false, uh, it's yet another example where we have to be careful to read too much into uh, what the media says about any uh, aspect of scientific research, especially that related to psychology or psychiatry or mental health. Well, next up on psychiatry today, let's take a look at a paper that shows how people who suffer from anxiety differ in terms of how they see the world and how this can even be uh, observed uh, in certain structures in the brain. <clears throat> people with anxiety fundamentally perceive the world differently, according to a study reported in the journal Current Biology on March the 3rd. They aren't simply making the choice to play it safe. This new study shows that people with diagnosed with anxiety are less able to distinguish between a neutral or safe stimulus, in this case the sound of a tone, and one that was earlier associated with a threat of money loss or gain. In other words, when it comes to emotional experiences, they show a behavioral phenomenon known as overgeneralization. In patients with anxiety, emotional experience induces changes in brain circuits that last after the experience is over. These changes occur in primary brain circuits that later mediate the response to a new stimuli, resulting in an inability to discriminate between the originally experienced emotional stimulus, and a new similar one. Therefore, anxiety patients respond emotionally to such new stimuli as well, resulting in anxiety even in apparently irrelevant new situations. Importantly, sufferers from anxiety cannot control this, as it is a perceptual inability to discriminate. So what they're saying is there's something inherently disturbed in how anxiety sufferers perceive certain stimuli uh, leading to their anxiety. Well, we're going to take another commercial break at this point. We'll come back and uh, examine the author's methods and conclusions about anxiety patients, and I'll have more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. And we're talking about a study that found that people with anxiety differ in how they perceive things. Researchers trained people with anxiety to associate three distinct tones with one of three outcomes, money loss, money gain, or no consequence. In the next phase... Study participants were presented with one of 15 tones and were asked whether they'd heard the tone before in training or not. If they were right, they were rewarded with money. The best strategy was not to mistake or overgeneralize a new tone for one they'd heard in the training phase. But the researchers found that people with anxiety were more likely than healthy controls to think that a new tone was actually one of the tones they'd heard earlier. That is, they were more likely to mistakenly associate a new tone with money loss or gain. Those differences weren't explained by differences in participants' hearing or learning abilities. They simply perceived the sounds that were earlier linked to an emotional experience differently. Functional magnetic resonance images of the brains of people with anxiety versus healthy controls showed differences in brain responses too. Using functional MRI, you can actually see the image of the brain in real time while people are having certain thoughts or emotions or performing certain tasks. So you can look at what's happening in the brains while these people are feeling anxiety. And the differences they found were mainly in a structure called the amygdala, a brain region related to fear and anxiety, and also in primary sensory regions of the brain. 
These results strengthen the idea that emotional experiences induce changes in sensory representations in anxiety patients' brains. The findings might help to explain why some people are more prone to anxiety than others, although the underlying brain changes that lead to anxiety isn't in and of itself all bad. Anxiety traits can be completely normal and even beneficial evolutionarily, yet an emotional event, even minor sometimes, can induce brain changes that might lead to full-blown anxiety. Well, there you have it, some interesting illustration of what happens in the brains of people who suffer from anxiety. Hopefully, researchers can translate that into uh, trying to develop better treatments for anxiety, which are sorely needed. Next up on Psychiatry Today, this um, is an article that I thought uh, would be interesting in terms of looking at the issue of our personal relationships and <clears throat> how the effect of our increasingly mobile society and also society that is increasingly dependent on electronic media for social interaction is changing our personal relationships. And uh, a researcher claims that uh, what is characterized as our throwaway culture can include friendships. Um, <clears throat> in a highly mobile society like the United States, people who relocate for work, school, or simply to wipe the slate clean tend to jettison replaceable objects when they move. Uh, are your BFFs as disposable as your razors? According to this new study, the mindset that objects are disposable extends to social ties. A scary thought indeed. According to this new study from the University of Kansas, which appeared in the journal Personal Relationships, the mindset that objects are disposable extends to social ties because they found a correlation between the way we look at objects in the way we perceive our relationships. If we move around a lot, we develop attitudes of disposability toward objects like furniture, books, devices, basically whatever merchandise you have at home, even your car. In four separate studies, researchers tied the view that objects are disposable to an attitude that social relationships also could be replaced. Subjects online and on campuses completed questionnaires measuring willingness to dispose of objects or relationship partners. Other subjects were primed to imagine scenarios that involved the probability of relocating. Among the study's main findings, the perception of objects as disposable is associated with perceiving friends the same way. A personal history of greater mobility is tied to a higher readiness to dispose of objects and also close social ties like friendships and romantic relationships. Increasing the sense of residential mobility also boosts a person's willingness to dispose of both objects and personal relationships. 
The new research extends work conducted in the 1930s by psychologist Kurt Lewin, who compared social ties in Germany and the United States. This isn't a new idea of the United States as a mobile country. For many people here, moving up means moving around. If you're willing to move for school or a job, you have a higher chance of being successful. But the authors are saying it also makes things superficial and disposable. It might be fine to have disposable diapers, but not disposable friendships. Now, <clears throat> the author of the current study points to a mobile society characterized by disposability, which tends to promote superficiality over profounder human relationships. If you know you're moving and develop the idea that everything can be replaced, you won't develop the same strong and deep ties. And he's suggesting this is a broad phenomenon where we all tend to look at relationships to co-workers, friends, and social network members as replaceable. Even in romantic relationships, when students were asked what they would do when things got difficult, most of them said they would rather move on than rather to try to work things out or, heaven forbid, turn to a counselor. Such attitudes take a toll on the overall quality of people's lives and our society. Research suggests only deeper, high-quality ties provide us with the kind of support we need, like love, understanding, and respect. You need these very close ties to feel safe and secure and function properly. If social ties are seen as disposable, you're less likely to get what you need from your network, which can negatively affect your mental and physical health as well as your longevity. Well, <clears throat> the author obviously presents a, a disturbing point of view about uh, this concept of social relationships, even romantic ones, as being disposable as our society becomes ever more mobile. Um, I would have to say uh, the, the only useful take-home message from all this is that uh, it would be uh, incumbent upon us to work harder to maintain social relationships uh, that are no longer going to be valuable for our emotional and mental well-being, even if we have to move or relocate, and uh, not just consider the idea that, well, I'm moving far away, so I have to move on from this relationship. Um, <clears throat> I have to admit, I find that attitude uh, does seem quite disturbing. Well, next up on psychiatry today, we're going to go back into looking at how studying the brain gives us more information about how the mind works. Mental abilities are shaped by individual differences in the brain. <clears throat> Everyone has a different mixture of personality traits. Some are outgoing, some are tough, and some are anxious. A new study suggests that brains also have different traits that affect both anatomical and cognitive factors, such as intelligence and memory. 
The results are published in the journal NeuroImage. A major focus of research in cognitive neuroscience is understanding how intelligence is shaped by individual differences in brain structure and function. For years, cognitive neuroscientists have tried to find relationships between specific areas of the brain and mental processes such as general intelligence or memory. Until now, researchers have been unable to successfully integrate comprehensive measures of brain structure and function in one analysis. Researchers for this study measured the size and shape of features all over the brain. They were able to look at brain cell fiber bundles, the white matter tracts, which is uh, the uh, pathways along which brain cells transmit information, the volume of different parts of the brain, the thickness of the cortex, which uh, that is mostly the uh, cell bodies or gray matter, and blood flow. They were also able to look at cognitive variables like executive function and working memory all at once. Using a statistical technique called independent component analysis, the researchers grouped measures that were related to each other into four unique traits. Together, these four traits explain most of the differences in the anatomy of individuals' brains. The traits were mostly driven by differences in brain biology, including brain size and shape, as well as the individual's age. The factors failed to explain differences in cognitive abilities between people. The researchers then examined the brain differences that were unexplained by the four traits. These remaining differences accounted for the individual differences in intelligence and memory. <clears throat> well, let's take another commercial break here before we get into uh, the rest of that discussion. And when we come back, we'll examine what these four traits are that are affected by the structure of the brain, and we'll have more mental health-related news beyond that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, this is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. And we're talking about how certain mental abilities are shaped by individual differences of the brain. And researchers were able to identify cognitive and anatomical characteristics that predict general intelligence and account for individual differences in a specific brain network that is critical to intelligence, the frontoparietal network. The four traits that reported in the study are a unique way to examine how brains differ between people. This knowledge can help researchers study subtle differences linked to cognitive abilities. Brains, it turns out, are not unexpectedly as different as faces and This study helps understand what a normal brain looks like. By looking for unexpected brain differences, they were able to hone in on parts of the brain related to things like memory and intelligence. The researchers released their data to the public through an online platform called the Open Science Framework to encourage comprehensive studies of brain structure and function. So if you're so inclined and want to take a look at what they found, again, uh, check out the Open Science Framework uh, to see this work that they did. And uh, it came from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And again, it was published in the journal Neuroimage the end of February. Next up on Psychiatry Today, let's follow up on brain functioning and cognitive abilities, uh, talking about Alzheimer's disease, which of course robs one of all those things. Well, it turns out that, uh, you know all this hype that has been going on the past several years about things you can do to keep your cognitive abilities and stave off Alzheimer's or other types of dementia on recommendations from things like learning a new foreign language, uh, learning a new musical instrument, and uh, playing electronic uh, mind uh, training or memory games, uh, apps on phones, or even uh, small handheld video game consoles, things like that. Well, up until now, most of the research that I've found has shown that none of that really helps reliably 
that the strongest evidence for uh, preserving cognitive function and staving off dementia, including Alzheimer's, is for exercising regularly and for maintaining social activities. So this study was a tad disturbing. It said um, that keeping the brain active may not delay signs of Alzheimer's disease. So uh, let's uh, see what they had to say. An active mind with intellectual pursuits in midlife may delay the onset of Alzheimer's disease symptoms, but it does not appear to stave off physical changes in the brain for most people, according to this new study. Studies have shown that uh, staying active in midlife reduces the onset of symptoms, but based on the new results, the physical changes, including the amyloid plaque buildup in the brain, which is commonly seen in Alzheimer's, doesn't change based on such activity for most people. The researchers studied almost 400 people aged 70 and older without dementia. Of those, 53 had mild cognitive impairment, which may and often does precede the onset of dementia. They were divided into two groups based on years of education. Their brains were scanned to identify physical signs of Alzheimer's. Mental and physical activities were assessed with questionnaires. The participants rated how often each month or week they had done light, moderate, and vigorous exercise. Heavy activities like mowing the lawn and light activities like laundry or vacuuming when they were aged 50 to 65. For the same time period, they estimated how often they had read books, magazines, newspapers, played games, played a musical instrument, done crafts, or attended social clubs. Neither brain volume built up of amyloid plaques nor brain glucose metabolism, which is a measure of brain function, were strongly tied to education level, occupation, or mental and physical activities in midlife. But people with at least 14 years of education who carried the APOE4 gene, which increases the risk of Alzheimer's disease, who kept mentally fit in midlife, did have less amyloid plaque than similar people who did not stay mentally active. This research is reported in the journal Neurology. One in five people have this APOE4 gene. It's not clear why only the APOE4 carriers with 14 or more years of education would have slower plaque accumulation with this midlife cognitive activity it's important for people to know that the researchers did not look at dementia outcomes. Still, people should find activities they enjoy. If you only play chess, which is mentally stimulating, but you don't enjoy it, it may not benefit you very much. Find something that you enjoy and try exposing yourself to new things that are challenging, the author suggests. But ideally, you should be doing this throughout your lifetime rather than just starting in middle age. All right, well, before we draw too many firm conclusions, 
from this. One major caveat, in my opinion, that wasn't addressed in the article about the study is um, the fact that the authors relied on the subject's self-report about their physical exercise and their uh, other cognitive stimulation, like reading and playing games and instruments and crafts and social clubs. Um, I mean, I think if you're just relying on people's self-reports and their own recollection or recall uh, in a population where you're, you're thinking there may be problems with memory, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? Um, it would be much more difficult to do the study better, but to do it better, you would have to actually <clears throat> take a population and study them um, over most of their adult life and really track how much time they spent doing at least moderate, if not vigorous, physical exercise and um, what other kinds of cognitively stimulating activities they engaged in, such as the games and music and reading and social activities, crafts and so on. And only then could you draw these conclusions. <clears throat> but, you know what, let's, let's just take the study results on face value. Let's ignore that one big methodological flaw for the moment. And let's assume that even people who uh, did all that and have um, you know, 14 years of education, so we're talking at least two years of college, uh, would have slower plaque accumulation. Um, it doesn't mean that you should give up and think, wow, uh, the accumulation of plaque is inevitable. If I have this gene, none of this will help. Uh, not true. Um, even if you have this gene and that puts you at risk for Alzheimer's disease, all of those activities will help. But uh, I do agree with the author's recommendation that, you know, just to do these things for the sake of, of trying to help the health of your brain isn't enough. It ought to be things that you enjoy doing, interested in doing. So not learning a new language just for that sake, but a language you always wanted to be able to speak or learning to play a musical instrument either if you never played one before or if you have, but there was another one you always wanted to take up but never did or never could. Um, again, the bottom line is I think we still have to say that being uh, stimulated intellectually and socially and engaging in regular exercise will help stave off the symptoms of dementia, even if it cannot uh, prevent the development of the physical uh, changes that take place in the brain for those who develop Alzheimer's, especially those who are genetically uh, predisposed to it, still uh, very much worth doing all those things. Um, and again, there's a lot more evidence for uh, exercise and social activity and not a whole lot of evidence uh, for those uh, brain training games or, or memory testing and developing games. Uh, it's not that they can hurt, uh, but there's no real hard evidence that they do a whole lot. Next, do you know someone who you think is addicted to their phone or tablet or, or uh, laptop, what have you? Uh, researchers are looking at whether cell phone use is detrimental to mental health. And they find that addiction to and not simply use of mobile technology is linked to anxiety and depression, at least in college-age students. This was published in the journal Computers in Human Behavior. 
There's a long history of the public fearing new technologies as they are deployed in society. This happened with televisions, video games, and most recently smartphones. They surveyed over 300 university students with questionnaires that looked at their mental health, their amount of cell phone and internet use, and their motivations for doing these things. They asked things like, did you think your academic or work performance is negatively affected by your cell phone use? You think that life without the internet is boring, empty, and sad. We're going to see if addictive and self-destructive behaviors with phones and the internet were related to mental health. People who were described by themselves as having really addictive style behaviors toward the internet and phones scored much higher on depression and anxiety scales. But they didn't find a relationship between cell phone or internet use and negative mental health outcomes among those who use these technologies just to escape from boredom. So the motivation for going online is important in relating the technology usage to depression and anxiety. Then they looked at the role of having but not using a phone during a stressful situation. Those who were allowed to keep their phone during an experimental stressful situation were less likely to be negatively affected by stress than those without their phones. Having it seemed to allow that group to resist or to be less sensitive to the stress. The benefit was small and short-lived, but suggests the phone might serve as a comfort item in stressful and anxiety-producing situations. So there you have it. Well, in any case, hopefully you're not addicted to your phone, and hopefully you'll have a wonderful stress-free week until we get together again next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.